Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby. And today I've got Andrew Waters from Xander back with me. And we're going to talk about the state of the job market. And this is going to be an interesting perspective because Xander have presence in the UK and in the US. So there's a very good view that Andrew can give us and give us for, for markets on both sides of the Atlantic. So, Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Good to see you again. It's been a while. I think the last one was probably two months ago, maybe two years ago. So the world Andrew, has changed a lot. Far, far too long. We really can't let that happen again. I'm always impressed at how well you do your intros, by the way. How many episodes have you recorded in total now in your career? This will go out as about episode 150. I'd have to count them up to check. But you're other, you've obviously but been there's, a podcast There's also the years. Next 100 Days podcast with Graham Arrowsmith, where literally as we speak, I've just booked in the guest who's going to be on our 400th episode. Yeah. Jeez, and that's actually, that's, that's a chap called Jason Van Orden. Now, back in the day when we started, Jason had one of the biggest podcasts on the internet. It was called Internet Business Mastery. And there was a business behind it, which both Graham and I had joined as members. And that's how Graham and I met and met quite a few other people through that, that source. I don't think I learned much about internet business, but I met really decent network out of it. So there we are. It's sitting at 550-something podcasts at the moment, plus the ones I've been a guest on myself. And you've got a plug in there for your next one as well. So this is perfect. I've done, we had, I don't know, maybe 20 episodes, and I always struggled with just rocking up and starting it in a flawless fashion. So obviously the repetition has worked for you. Repetition definitely works. It's the way to get anything right is turn it into a habit, in my opinion. But anyway, enough digressing and going down rabbit holes, Andrew. The state of the job market. What's going on out there? Well, it's interesting. Change is the only constant, as everyone knows. I think since we last spoke, the market has gone up and gone down and hopefully is coming back. We saw significant bounce back after COVID for a good 12, 18 months where everybody had fluidity of capital to invest and then scale and hire really, really key hires, but also build out and scale out teams. Then beginning to middle of last year, it started tightening. And I would say from our perspective personally, Q4 and Q1, Q1 this year and Q4 last year were particularly difficult. And there are obviously a lot of layoffs, more specifically in the tech sector than finance. I think finance stands the test of time better than most industry sectors or functional areas. But, you know, huge layoffs in big tech businesses in Q4 and Q1. And I think then we've seen a significant step in a positive direction in Q2. From a business perspective, we've had a really good Q2 and we started Q3 very well. The volume and the kind of momentum is there for finance recruitment. It quietens down in August and the summer, kind of mid-July, all of August, and obviously we're September now, we're starting to see more of those processes kind of get going. I think the period July and August doesn't necessarily mean that the market's gone dead. It's more that processes are delayed via people being on 
couple of days. And I think, Andrew, I've seen that in everything I've been involved in for about the last 20 years. Yeah. Nobody tries to tender a consulting project in July and August. So chances are, if you're working as an independent contractor, unless you've got a long ongoing project, you will always be quiet across the summer and things will pick up into September, October. Grow CFO, we know that nobody really thinks about training, personal development across the summer. So new inquiries have been classically lower than in July, but we know it'll pick up again in September. I think people tend to use those summer months just as a rest. And I think that means that um, there's good people have been refreshed and there's great bounce back in the finance market September, October, November, late January, February, March, and then again, May and June. People are working to desired start dates of key hires. So they need someone by January, they need someone by June if they've got a different year end. Clearly, depending on the industry sector or the backing of the organisation, if they're listed or PE or VC or bootstrapped, there'll be different parameters that they're working to timetable wise. But from an activity in the market perspective, number of roles that are moving actively, I'd say that September, October, November period is particularly busy. And that February, March, April period is again, particularly busy. Yeah. So what sort of companies have been creating the demand before we came into the sort of summer slowdown? I think obviously the most of what we do personally is venture-backed or PE-backed startups and scale-ups. So they'd be SME growth businesses. They could be bootstrap businesses. Typically, they may be as small as having 10, 20 staff through to kind of 500, 600 staff. And I think the requirement isn't always just a growth-focused requirement. It can be change-focused requirement, right? I think whilst there was a slowdown significantly you know, towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year, there was still recruitment going on. It was more interim or part-time or contract-led recruitment where they couldn't commit to a full-time perm CFO salary at 200000 but they could commit to the same individual on a two or three day a week basis. It extended the runway. It gave the opportunity of driving towards profitability or they couldn't afford or commit to a full-time CFO or full-time head of finance at $120,000 or $150,000, but they could for an interim project to get their latest fundraise to a certain stage or to work on an M&A kind of integration. So there's so much breadth to the finance leader community and the roles that CFOs do. It's never going to be a completely dead market because there's always interim, fractional, contract, perm. And as I said before, whilst in certain sectors, there's been big layoffs, it's very difficult when a business gets to a certain size and scale to strip finance as much as they can tech or sales or marketing, which is obviously a brilliant position for finance directors, finance leaders to be in. Having said that, there's obviously individuals that have lost their roles that have then gone through a really tough three, six, nine month period where they've been looking for new opportunities and the volume of roles out there hasn't been there like it has been. And it's been polarised even more. It's been seen as more of an extreme because we had such a good 12, 18 month market, an abnormally good market in 2021. 
and early 2022, end of 2020. Therefore, when what happened happened, it seems even more severe than actually it probably was. So I think people are thinking more logically about sustainable growth and driving to profitability because there isn't the availability of capital to fundraise or raise debt or equity or whatever. Interest rates going up, number of factors, meaning that people want to build perhaps more traditional, historically focused, profitable businesses that grow via their profits or via sustainable growth measures, as opposed to 2020, 2021, where raise as much cash as possible and work out where we're going to allocate as quick as possible to grow as quick as possible. Should we allocate the funds to M&A? Should we allocate the funds to international expansion, product development, or our marketing spend and growth spend? And the thing that's really interesting in the market now is the capital allocation conversation is both a growth and a defense mechanism where they have to take some capital allocation out and still retain the customer base or reduce churn as much as possible. It's a super interesting complex matrix of decisions that CFOs need to oversee at the moment. And I actually think the role is probably become even more interesting and even more important than it was when people were looking at kind of buying builds and scaling at all costs. I think that there's a lot more complexity to decision making now. And actually, that's why a lot of slightly later stage scale up businesses and some startups are looking for CFOs who have been there and done it and experienced good times and bad times a bit more. And I've got some battle scars around things that they've done wrong in the past that they won't do again, or experiences they've had where things haven't gone according to plan and from a growth mindset perspective, haven't been shaken and carried on. And it's not an age thing. I think it's an experience and knowledge and wisdom thing, but entrepreneurial founders, CEOs need a co-pilot that has done things that they've not done before and is smarter than them in certain areas and strategically more adept in certain areas, else there's no point in having the co-pilot. They Mm. need to be challenged and pushed. And naturally, that links to someone as a CFO who she or he has done that many times. Are you seeing much difference between the European market and the US market from that point of view? I'd say there's a bit of a difference. I think the US market bounced back and is bouncing back slightly quicker than the UK market or the European market. We do support some businesses in Berlin and Amsterdam and a few other kind of tech hubs in Europe. So we think the US market tends to bounce back ahead of Europe, not ridiculously so, maybe three months. I would say that the US market has probably remained more gung-ho because the dry up of the VC or PE capital hasn't been as extreme as in Europe. And therefore, the type of CFO they're looking for hasn't changed as much as the UK or European CFO that founders or VCs are looking for. And there's been less move of fractional to part-time CFOs. So at the beginning of this year and the end of last year, the first four CFO placements we meet made were all part-time CFOs. I've never had that before. I've never had a run of four CFO roles in a row that have all been two days or three days or four days. There's always been a fractional CFO, part-time CFO market, but it has increased significantly. I think depending on what happens in a year, two years time, it might change again. 
but it's always going to be higher than it was, I think. In the US, that has increased a bit, but not to the same level as the UK. I think the UK or Europe is slightly more risk averse and takes measures to extend runway and have a little bit more of a safety blanket ahead of next stages than the US. But yeah, you know, they're, they're operating in a market where entrepreneurialism is celebrated a bit more and therefore the capital available is, I'm not saying it's easy, but it is slightly easier than in Europe to, and the check sizes are bigger, which enables them to do some of those things. Is the rise of part-time fractional CFOs to do with companies realising they need to have a CFO type person earlier in the growth cycle than perhaps traditionally they have? I think for certain industry sectors, certainly, it's harder to do some of the things they're trying to do and they need to do it earlier. And therefore, they need a higher experienced, capable, strategic finance leader CFO on a part-time basis more than they did before. So if it's harder to raise Series A capital, therefore, the type of individual to support that raise is likely to need to have more of a black book likely to know more individuals that would be interested in investing in the business and is likely to have more experience of putting investors' mind at ease and tell the story of the business in the best way possible to have a successful outcome versus what they have at the moment or a founder trying to do it themselves. I think if the founder's trying to do it themselves and they come from a strategic consulting or big four or investment banking background, the storytelling and the strategic model and all of that good stuff probably can be done by themselves. But if they come from a tech or a sales or a product background, then they definitely need this resource early. I think in the biotech, health tech space, clearly a lot of what they're raising capital for is IP and research and development and clinical trials. And there needs to be a story behind that, which a CFO needs to tell. And that needs to be told in a very clear and successful way versus not having that resource there. One of the things we touched on in the past, I think our last conversation was talking about the up and coming CFO and these FDs, heads of finance, VP of finance, with the potential to be a CFO in the future. I don't think that it's the end of that. I think that that is still very much happening and it is a very logical move for many, many high growth entrepreneurial businesses that are backed or not backed to gain the intellect, the commitment, the proactivity, the more hands-on nature of a head of finance or an FD with the ability to step up. That's still happening and will continue to happen. There's just more examples where there's things that they wouldn't have done enough times or know a big enough network that will help some founders with the type of tasks that they need to be done. And I also think that one of the key things that we work with founders or VCs or PE firms to do is assessing the business to work out what type of finance leader they need. So what is the realistic growth trajectory, not what the founder is saying, because that's always going to be slightly different than what the realistic growth trajectory is. And if we went just off what the founder is saying the business is going to do, we're going to over hire and under-deliver for the candidate on many, many occasions where a CFO will start and they'll be like, there's no role for me to do here or there's very little role for me to do here. It should be two days a week. You then got the complexity of the industry sector. So is it high volume, low value? Is it R&D focused? How complex is it? 
You've then got the founder's background. You know, do they come from an accounting or a strategy or investment banking background? If so, then the type of finance leader profile is different. And they probably can get this up and coming CFO and partner with the CEO on those fundraising because they've done it before. And then you've got the next key milestone. So in the next 12 months, what does this finance leader need to lead on for the business? And all of those kind of metrics get thrown into a cost benefit matrix around growth trajectory, industry sector, next milestone, founders background to work out what is the right finance leader for that business. For some, that will be a CFO who's done IPOs. For some, it will be a CFO who is a part-time that can scale up their days depending on the requirement. For some, it will be this up-and-coming CFO of the future who's shadowed as a number two in a great business before. For some, it will be the right outsource provider or a really strong financial controller who's happy just doing a financial controller role and they bring in a CFO in two years' time above them. And there's so many parameters to consider. And I think, you know, this head of finance, FD, with the potential to be a CFO, if we take a B2B SaaS business, for example, which maybe is growing, but it's slightly more steady growth, and they're not looking to do an IPO anytime soon, and they've got Series A investment, and it's likely the Series B is going to be a follow-on. And you can find a candidate that's all over B2B SaaS metrics, can nail controllership, FP&A, commercial finance, and has led a Series B as a number two before. They're a great example of an individual that would fit that business. But the key with that is the growth trajectory is steady to medium growth, not hyper growth. Because if it's ridiculous hyper growth or they aren't going to get a follow on Series B investor, it's a brand new Series B investor that changes the search again. All these little minute details kind of change who and why we should be targeting certain individuals. We seem to talk an awful lot at the moment in things we're doing in Growth CFO about finance transformation, about automation, about AI coming in and changing things. Other skills around business change and finance transformation something you're seeing in demand in the market? We've seen a lot of interim transformation type roles. And I think when periods of challenge, unfortunately, I've been in finance search now for nearly 20 years. So when periods of big change happen, financial crisis, COVID, whatever, there's always going to be significant transmission that's going to be led. I think that the AI and the way that digital accounting tools have been accepted and received and have improved finance functions is incredible. And it ultimately, if utilised in the best way, can drive efficiency and more time focused on the key metrics to then decide the best course of action strategically. So there's been certainly big milestone or transformation elements in job descriptions we've seen, even for heads of finance, group controllers, FP&A directors, where part of that is AI or digital finance systems. And I guess the best CFOs in the market, the most impactful CFOs, are those that in the first three months or six months have the team set up and the technology set up in a way that it is super efficient. And sometimes some CFOs will bring in interim transformation expert to overhaul systems, processes, digital kind of tools so that actually the finance function is running really, really efficiently. 
and perhaps doesn't need to be as big as they initially thought. So a CFO could come into a 20 million business with a finance team of 10 or whatever, and you're thinking about making a certain number of hires. But when they review the finance systems, the digital kind of tools available, it might be the best course to bring in a six months fixed term contract or day rate professional to overhaul the systems, processes, controls. And actually the finance team that they had initially could be fit for purpose, but it could be needed to be increased, but not as much. It could be made smaller. Ideally, there's an expert that you're inheriting in the finance function that will embrace and enjoy those finance transformation challenges. I think proactive finance leaders want to gain new skills, want to own projects, want to feel like they're making a difference. And I think the great CFOs notice that in the finance leaders below them or the finance leaders community and identify those individuals as extra bits of their job that put their name in the business so that it's talked about positively. And actually, it creates career opportunities internally, but also externally. There's many CFOs out there that have got brilliant number twos or two brilliant number twos, controller, FP&A, commercial business partnering. And if there's not enough room for them all to keep growing, most of those CFOs, we get emails regularly where Look, Johnny's been with us three years. He's done this, this and this. I'd love to keep promoting him, but he's ready for a CFO role. He's ready for a VP of finance role. Can you help him out or help her out? She's amazing on FP&A and we just haven't got more breadth to give her. She's led on this transformation project and this integration of a deal. Nothing exciting is coming up. Therefore, we've had a conversation internally. She's actively looking for an FD job. Can you keep her in mind or have a conversation? So I think the communication between CFOs and their teams and the finance leaders can be a really positive one because most people are not selfishly out for themselves. Most people go into every day's worth of work wanting to do it well. Like nine out of 10 people go to work to do a good job and deliver. So, yeah, I think it's just thinking about that. I've probably gone off tangent slightly there. Sorry, preaching. Your question was on finance transformation, but yes, there's definitely loads of it. Yeah, but I think that is going into a very interesting area, Andrew, around the finance leader developing the rest of the team and recognising that their own future might be outside of the organisation, doing everything they possibly can to get them ready for that next role, even if it means losing them as a member of staff. I think that's important. But it's actually another question I wanted to ask you, Andrew. And back when we last spoke, we were. Coming out of COVID, folk had managed to learn about working from home, had managed to find the interesting different work-life balance that working from home provides. I recorded a few weeks ago a fascinating podcast with Alex Triplett, who is COO and CFO of a big company, AppFire. And he's based in New York, but it's finance team is working in a hybrid way. He's got members of his finance team scattered right across the United States and right across Europe, all working remotely, getting together periods of time as a team as a whole. What's the trend like now around that sort of flexible hybrid working model? It's still a million miles more flexible than it was pre-COVID. And there are still a vast number that are fully remote. Hybrid seems to be the most common, where there's an expectation of 
being in the office two to three days and then from home the rest of the time. There's also ranges of that, right? So somewhere it's preferred to be four days, somewhere it's only one day. So hybrid is now the most popular method for working. I think that everyone probably, other than maybe financial services or obviously healthcare, et cetera, where you've got to meet patients there and then. But for, for finance leaders, I would say that hybrid is the most common. There's still a lot of fully remote businesses like you just described. I think the key thing for that from a time zone perspective and from a communication perspective is working out whether it's Slack or GitHub or whatever it is that everybody is on board with it and that they're comfortable with the asynchronous communication so that there's an understanding of your priorities and values and behaviors in a fully remote environment. What are the non-negotiables? What are the flexibilities? That obviously the communication of that message and the collaborative nature of that message can really be exposed if you're not on the same page. And I think the main thing with that is, you know, how do you challenge that? How do you deal with that situation, which is a lot harder than when you see someone in the office every day of the week? Then again, the hybrid piece is interesting because why come into the office on a Tuesday if you're the only person in finance there and everybody else is doing like a Wednesday or a Thursday? So there's got to be a communication about which days teams do which. So that if you're going to trek into London or trek into Manchester or New York, and you pay out of your own pocket after tax for the travel, that it is useful and it's not just a tick box exercise. Else actually you're better, which is what a lot of organisations do, is they're pretty much fully remote. There may be one day a week, or it may be a couple of days a month, or one day a quarter, or one day every couple of months. And it's more of a team social and a get-together on OKRs and strategy than it is actively working together. I speak to a lot of people, also myself, our get-togethers now are more around strategy, networking, kind of having fun, because I've got so used to now working on my own. I think I'd get distracted if I was in the office. Yeah, doing I that. think I would as well. Yeah. And I do have a view of this. that says if there's that one day a week that you're supposed to be in the office, well, could you get away on that one day a week with virtually leaving your laptop at home? Potentially. Yeah. If you are just going to the office, taking a laptop with you, sitting down at a hot desk and getting on with stuff, why are you there? Yeah, if there's quality time and everyone didn't have their laptops, you could say that, that could be an incredible, for certain teams, it could be an incredible opportunity mm. to really develop. Obviously, things, things that's in a simplistic world where things don't go wrong, uh, SBB or whatever's happening in the world kicks off and you haven't got your laptop, then that would probably be bit annoying but you know mobile phones do do a lot but i guess the other day in the office should be about workshops about team get-togethers about brainstorming stuff and talking about what are objectives for the next week and having set out what everybody's supposed to be doing then go off do it i agree i think it could be a very valuable face-to-face period of connection for your teams and your peers on key project elements i guess the other challenge is having an office available so CFOs have benefited from a much lower property costs, and that's been a great benefit to the finance functions and the cost function of any organization. So how they have pivoted to sharing offices with another business or reducing their days or reducing their space, the larger the organization, the more difficult that communication of how that workspace is shared becomes a challenge. 
one I do not have the solution to because there's COOs and chief people officers who can organise that because that's quite a big, uh, big challenge to coordinate. Yeah, I suppose I'm coming from this the background of over 20 years of management consultant, where most of us tended, well, not before COVID, not working from home, but a lot of it was working on the client site. Yeah. And you come back to the office to do specific things. I, I kind of think, well, we sussed the working model there. We knew that we needed a lot more work, big workshopping rooms. We needed less hot desks. We just need to structure things properly, need a good room booking system. And it worked. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it'd be interesting to see where we are in a couple of years. I think it'll take still another year or two to play out until we've got some sort of consistency. I think graduates or non-graduates, but those in their first five years, 10 years of working in industry do and have benefited from seeing their leaders and their peers more. Yes. So how does that work from a remote learning perspective? It might work for some people even better, but they have to be the top echelon of intellect and proactivity around their career development. And I'd say the people that are work hard, but if they could coast, they do coast. Them being at home, their career trajectory is not going to be at the same level as it would be if they were in the office every day for the first five years of their career. So that's an interesting, that's another debate in there are, that, that's a complete other podcast because I've already had experience of that on consulting projects we're trying to do during lockdown and developing the junior members on the team did prove a challenge because out of sight, out of mind, you didn't necessarily know when they were getting stuck. They didn't necessarily know when it was the right time to ask for help. So that there are a lot of things to explore, and that could be a really interesting topic for another conversation sometime, Andrew. Which is why for finance leaders, CFOs and their teams build their first five years, 10 years of their career. Obviously, grow CFO, great in terms of the training platforms that are available. They still need one one time with the CFO, and they still need to be really proactive around their career to fully immerse themselves in those learning and development programs to get the best out of it, which loads are, but there's going to be some that start better in person to learn. Yep, indeed. And even if you're doing learning over Zoom, there are distractions still around. If you're away in a classroom and you're supposed to be there listening to somebody at the front of the room doing the practical exercise, there are no distractions and you get on with it. There's still, I think, a long way to go in learning how to do all of this properly. And we'll only get better over time. So, Andrew, there have been some really useful insights there into the state of the recruitment market, what companies are looking for, how things are changing with deep different economic patterns that are going on. Certainly, we've got higher interest rates, which have changed the capital market, and perhaps those higher interest rates might be with us for a little while to come. So that might be the new norm. We're still looking at hybrid work models, still some way to go to get that absolutely right. So, Andrew, thank you hugely for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. No problem, Ken.